All right, take your Bibles and make your way to Mark's Gospel, chapter 8. I got to move my uh, marker in my Bible because we're getting right through chapter 8. Just a little bit of a reminder of where we've been. Jesus has taken a ministry trip trying to get some rest and moves out of the area of, of uh, the Jews into Tyre and Sidon, which is a Gentile area. And as soon as he gets there and goes in the house, a woman shows up begging him to cleanse her daughter from a, from a demonic uh, spirit that has possessed this little girl. And uh, we have that very intriguing uh, cleansing that Jesus does without a word. One of the only times we see that. He sees the faith of the woman and he says, go home, your daughter's fine. Never says anything. Isn't that, talk about power, right? And he's given an example to his disciples that there are these people called the Gentiles and Jesus has a plan for them. So he takes a roundabout trip from there and goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee to Decapolis, again a Gentile region. He had been there one time before where he healed the demoniac from Gadara, if you remember that account. And interestingly enough, that's one of the only times in Mark's account that Jesus tells somebody to go and tell. Most of the time he's saying, keep it to yourself, you know, just go, go about your life and thank God. With this man who wanted to go with him and follow him and be one of his disciples, Jesus says, no, you stay and you go tell people how good the Lord has been to you. And guess what this guy did? Exactly that. And so they come to Decapolis, you know, almost a year later, and everybody knows about Jesus. And I believe it's because of this one guy. This guy has become an evangelist. He's done his job, and a multitude show up, and, and at three days they're with him, and we have the feeding now of the 4,000. So Jesus feeds the 4,000 with a small uh, seven loaves and a couple of fish, and, and we talked about that. And then um, they, he leaves, he, they bring to him a man who is deaf and mute, and Jesus heals him in a rather strange way. And I think one of the things we take away from that, even with the lady in Tyre, is that Jesus is not going to be restricted to any one mode, <coughs> excuse me, any one mode in his ministry um, in, in the way that he heals. He heals that woman's daughter without a word. And in, in a very strange way, he heals this person who can't hear and can't speak um, with, by putting his fingers in his ear and literally spitting on his tongue. And again, this was a way to allow that non-hearing person to understand that Jesus is the one that is doing this and, and he's very targeted and physically involved with what's going on. So I think this is a faith move, not for anybody else, but for that man that's being healed. And he's healed and Jesus says, okay, now just go home and don't say anything. And what does he do? He tell everybody. I mean, I don't know how you don't tell everybody. But he does. So we, we come to our point here um, that Jesus gets back in a boat and goes back home to the Jewish side. And before he can even get down the dock, who is there to meet him? But the Pharisees, <laughs> the religious leaders from Jerusalem. And they want a sign. Now, they're already the, 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 there's a growing resistance 
to Jesus' ministry. And these fellows are at the head of it. And Jesus says, you know what? You're not getting a sign. And he gets back in the boat. And they go back to the other side. And uh, we have the whole thing where Jesus tells the disciples, hey, guys, be very careful of the leaven, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Herodians. All right, and that's two separate sides. Pharisees, very religious, very uh, outwardly righteous. The Herodians, uh, basically the political arm of Palestine. Uh, the word politics comes from two words, poly meaning many, tick meaning a blood-sucking insect. Uh, he said, hey, and they were very wicked. The Herodians were very wicked, evil uh, politicians. And yet they, these, these two enemies came together in order to get rid of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, hey, be, guys, be careful of these two groups of people. Um, they're, they're, they have both fallen on either side of the straight and narrow path. And the disciples don't get it. He thinks because they said yeast that he's figured out that they only brought one little pita bread for 13 people and that he's upset with them. And Jesus basically scratches his head. And the title of the sermon last week was Slow Learners. It's like, what's it going to take for you guys to get a clue? I mean, and we had seven large basketfuls of leftovers when we when we headed over here, what did you do with them? <laughs> do you think that I have a problem with physical bread? I can, I can provide what we need. Catch a clue, fellows. Slow learners. So then they come to our text today in verse 22. Let's pick it up there in chapter 8. Then he came to Bethsaida, which, by the way, is the hometown of, uh, the original hometown of uh, Peter and John and James and Andrew. It's, it's in, it's in the, the north part of the Sea of Galilee. They got to Bethsaida and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes, here, here's the same, we, we got the same thing of Jesus using saliva. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And this is so strange um, and he looked up, this the guy, and he said, I see men like trees walking. What does that indicate? It's blurry, it's blurry right? Uh, I, I can see, as far as we know, this guy had never seen before. Uh, but he said, I, I, I see, I'm pretty sure it's men, but they're, they're blurry. They look like trees walking. Now look, what's that? Well, that could, that could do it. That might be it, Tom. Thank you. Tom, Tom giving us a very literal understanding of the word this morning. Thank you. <laughs> Verse 25, then he put his hands on his eyes again, and maybe he just wiped them out. I don't know, Tom, maybe you're right. And he made them look up, and it was restored and saw everything how, church? Clearly. Then he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell anyone into town. Don't even go back into the town. And, and, don't, and if, you, if you run into people out, out here from the town, don't say anything to them either. Um, but we know how that's going to work out. So uh, I want to talk to you today. I think there, I, th this, these, two pat, these two healings, really three healings, <coughs> have always baffled me a little bit. It's so strange. Again, I think part of it is the mode. Jesus is not going to get stuck in any one mode because it's not the mode that makes the difference. Listen to me. It's the man that makes the difference. Amen? It, it's... it's 
in, in all kinds of healing, whether it's physical, spiritual healing, it's not the mode. That's why I am not a proponent uh, um, of the sinner's prayer. Here's why. Number one, it's not in this it's not in the Bible. There is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. You know what's in the Bible? Repent and believe. And you know what that looks like? It looks very different for a lot of people. Amen? Repent and believe. Uh, so we got to be careful about getting stuck on modes. Jesus wasn't. And he wasn't going to be limited by any mode either. So number one in your outline today, I want to just kind of get through this. And I don't think, I think the last point I'm probably going to end up saving because I do want to unpack that a little bit. I may just mention it today. Number one is I want you to see his touch. And we just read that in verses 22 through 26. Now, again, interesting. This miracle is only recorded by Mark. Uh, Matthew and Luke, the other synoptic gospels, they leave this one out. The same with uh, the deaf person in the ears. Those are left out. And it's only Mark. And, and this, and oddly enough, if you go search the miracles of Jesus recorded everywhere in all four Gospels, this is the only miracle you will find, listen to this, that takes places in stages. Isn't that interesting? Because when he did the thing with the ears and the tongue, Mark's favorite word is what? Immediately, Immediately he could hear and speak, which is truly miraculous because even though he could hear, speaking should take months if not years, right? But that's not how... And then they said he does all things well or completely. Amazing. Messianic uh, prophecy being fulfilled right there. But this is the only miracle you'll find performed by Jesus that is not immediately complete. It takes place in a couple of steps. Yep, and I'm Dale shaking his head over there. And I did for years, but I think I found something, Dale. We're going to find out if it's true here in a minute. Remember this context, it's been about two and a half years since the disciples began their journey of getting to know Jesus and then being officially called by him, which means we've only got about six months left. Now in verse 22, it mentions Bethsaida. It's at the very top of the Sea of Galilee on the east side of the Jordan River, right before it spills into the Sea of Galilee. And notice in verse 23, and I love this, it's so personal. Um, I, I think sometimes we get this idea of Jesus that might not have been the real one. You've got to be careful with that a little bit. But look what it says in verse 23. Uh, it says, and he took, the, he took the blind man by the hand. Isn't that something? He took him by the hand. It's so personal. Now remember, this guy is what? Blind. He can't see, right? But he can what? He can feel and he can hear. Actually, he can feel and hear those senses are probably mightily increased in him. That's generally what happens. And here's Jesus. He can't see Jesus, but he can hear him. And Jesus takes him by the hand. Why? So the man could recognize Jesus the only way he could, by touch. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And, and you, know, you know what encourages me with that, Dale? God knows my blindness too. And he comes to me in ways that I can understand. He grabs him by the hand. But then what does he do? <laughs> he takes him out of the city. He takes him out of the city. Why would he take him out of Bethsaida? Hmm? It is personal, kind of like the guy with the hearing. But I think there's another reason. And again, this is where your understanding of, of, of Scripture in the whole, just jot this down. 
Matthew eleven twenty one. Let me just read it to you. Matthew eleven twenty one. Woe to you, Bethsaida. This is Jesus speaking. In other words, a curse on you. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile pagan areas, they would have repented long ago of sackcloth and ashes. So, Jesus takes this man out of Bethsaida. Why? Because Bethsaida was under a curse, his own curse. Jesus had cursed that city because of their refusal to believe and repent and follow him. Even though he had done so many mighty miracles to back up the message, they wanted nothing to do with it. So the city itself sits under a curse. And so Jesus removes, listen, this is so beautiful in its gospel picture way. Jesus removes, listen to that, he removes the man, the blind man, from the place of cursing so that Jesus could pronounce upon him a blessing. How many of you know he's done that for us if you've repented and believed and are following him today? Woo, isn't that, isn't that a good news today? So he takes him out of the city. And he tells him in verse 26, don't go back there. Oh boy, is there a message in that for us today? Hey, Jesus removed you from the place of cursing. Stay out of there. Right? That's your old life. Why is it that we go back to these places of cursing and expect a blessing and then complain when we don't get it? I'll let you chew on that one. Bethsaida was under judgment. But here's the question. Why does this miracle take place in two stages? First, will you agree with me? Uh, could Jesus have healed him like that? Sure, of course he could have. Um, that wasn't the issue. And normally he did. Uh, it seems reasonable that the limitation was on the side of the human, not the divine. Alexander McLaren, a great uh, commentator, speaks of Christ this way, quote, accommodating the pace of his power to the slowness of the man's faith. Isn't that interesting? Or maybe it was the atmosphere of Bethsaida that hindered him, kind of like Nazareth. Remember he couldn't do anything in Nazareth because... Or, or did very little in Nazareth because they didn't believe. And, and, and he was limited. Maybe it was that. We don't, we're not 100% sure. But all I know is this. There are many times that I need a second touch. How about you? And many times, I don't know about you, I need a third, fourth, and fifth touch from the Lord. Amen? Maybe you're here today and you're here for one of those. Guess what? He's still touching people. Amen? Amen? And, and that second, third, fourth, and fifth touch is Still available for us today, amen? I need that today, and I know you need that today. And we're here, and he is still available to reach out and touch us. More than once. In another account, it says that the man broke into song. Now, we don't know what that song is, but I think it went like this. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. <laughs> right? Maybe that was it. I can see all the obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that have me blind. It's going to be a bright, bright, bright what? Y'all need to listen to some new music. <laughs> can you imagine? This man. First I see men like trees. just super blurry. And then Jesus touches his eyes. The second touch. 
How many of you got everything right the first time you heard it? Not me. Not me. It, it, it takes me a while to figure it out. Right? Even with Revelation, it's the Holy Spirit illumines Scripture. Guess what? We don't always walk in that well at first. How many of you remember, I look at Henry and Hazel back there. Y'all remember when they started to walk? Right? What do they do more than walking? Fall. Right? I remember when Jack, I don't know where Jack, there he is. I remember when Jack was just a little fella. You know, he was our eighth child. And I came home one day and the, the girls were so excited. I said, Daddy, watch. Uh, they, they put him up and he took a step. And I said to them, stop right there. I said, push him down and tell him no when he does that. <laughs> Because I knew after seven kids with number eight, when they start walking, the work starts coming. Amen? <laughs> Tell him no. We don't want him walking, right? But we do a lot more falling than walking when we, when, when, when we first be, learn something new, right? How many, anybody here glad that Jesus is patient? And because we, don't, we can't just stand up and run a marathon, he says, oh, forget it, you're out. No, he's not that way. There's a second touch, Right? And then things get clearer as we move along. That's his touch. Now let me, let's move along in this account. And I think, I wanna, I think we're going to run into maybe why we saw this strange uh, modes of healing. Because number two is his title. Let's look at verse 27 through 30. Are you there? Say amen. amen. All right, here we go. Now Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns of uh, to the towns of Caesarea Philippi. Now that's 24 miles north. And on the road, he asks his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? What are you hearing, guys? What's the scuttlebutt in Galilee? For 28. So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? If you've got your own Bible, please underline that. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Verse 30, Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. So it's interesting, at this point he heals this man of the blind and said, don't even go back in the city and don't tell anybody. And then they head north. They walked that 24, 25 miles north to one of the most beautiful places in northern Israel, uh, Caesarea Philippi. It is at the headwaters of the Jordan River. It's where the Jordan River starts. It has its genesis. And it might be a strange place for Jesus to reveal himself to his disciples. You say, why is that? Because it is originally known as the center for Baal worship. Yep. And it was also currently the site of a great temple to the Greek god Pan. He's the guy from uh, like C.S. Lewis's Mr. Tumnus, half goat, half man god, uh, the god of Pan. And normally, now, so here they are, they're in the, and this area is covered up with these little caves and niches um, 
with, with idols to pan to this God. It's a very, uh, has a very pagan history. And normally the disciples would be asked, uh, would ask questions of their rabbi. But Jesus flips the room on them and he asks them a question. And I can just imagine it as they're walking and as you're coming into Caesarea Philippi, you see all these grottos and, and niches uh, with, with, with little gods of Pan, this goat man. Uh, they're all over. I imagine as Jesus is looking at these little grottos and these, these, these pagan niches, he turns to his guys and says, so who do you say that I or, or, or who do you say that I am? Who do people say that I am? And some said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, and we know that Herod thought that, right? That's in the historical record. Herod thought he was John. Uh, some say Elijah. They were waiting. waiting is, is good Jews were waiting for the, anticipating the return of Elijah um, as, as, the, as the precursor of the Messiah. Of course, we know John actually happened to be, fulfilled that prophecy, right? Matter of fact, a good Jew, even to this day, if you know any Jewish people, when they celebrate the Passover, they always set an empty place, an empty chair with a full setting, the end of the table, and that is Elijah's chair. Because they're anticipating the return of Elijah, because when Elijah comes back, the Messiah's right behind him. How sad. How sad. But, Elijah, and then others said, well, or one of the prophets. But then comes the question. What about you? Everybody in history, very few people would, would speak ill of Jesus. I mean, just historically. Uh, he has his place among the greatest men that ever lived. He's always in a, makes the top 100 most influential men in history, those kind of types of lists. But is that really adequate to describe who Jesus is? I mean, the whole point of Mark's retelling of the history of the servant king Jesus is in verse number one as he opens his gospel. He lets the cat out of the bag. He says, this is the good news of Jesus Christ the Messiah, the Son of God. He says, so that's what we're getting to in this thing. Did the disciples understand that yet? Not fully, right? But that's what they're coming to. That's where we're going here. Jesus is not just one of a series of men. He's, he stands alone, unprecedented, unparalleled, unique. And the spotlight turns on his disciples. What do you think? Who do you say that I am? Okay, I, that's good. That's what everybody else says. I can see why they would say that. But what about you? What do you think? And you can feel the burn of that spotlight today, folks. Because he still asks everyone the same question. Who do you say that I am? And the prize for the right answer is eternal life. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that he is? We come to that fork in the road and everybody finds it. Was Jesus just a legend? He was definitely legendary, but was he just a legend? Was, was he a liar for claiming to be God and not being God? Was he a lunatic, a crazy man, not knowing what he was doing? Or was he the Lord? 
C.S. Lewis writes this in speaking to this matter. He said, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. What a moment of revelation here. And Peter answers simply, you are the Christ. Now that word Christ doesn't mean as much to us, not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It means you are the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. Even Messiah doesn't mean to us Gentiles what it meant to those Jews. It was a very pregnant term. Um, the closest we can come to it is king. You're the, you're the king. And we have been waiting for you. You're the one. Matthew adds in his account in Matthew 16, 19, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And if you wonder why here, it just says, Peter answers, you are the Christ, and there's nothing more about Peter. Remember, who is Mark's source for all this information? It's Peter, right? And I really think Peter is just downplaying his role in things, right? And in, and in, in Matthew, well, Matthew's the eyewitness, and Matthew gives us a little more information about that. Um, his, his name is Jesus, and that literally means Jehovah is salvation. And Christ is his title. It means the anointed king. Uh, I love that scene in Tolkien's series, The Lord of the Rings. The last, I think the last movie is my favorite. last book is my favorite, The Return of the King. And, and when... Strider comes into uh, Paul. What's the name of his home, his kingdom? Gondor. He is the rightful king of Gondor. But he's been on a mission, and that mission is fulfilled, and it's time for him to come and take his rightful place on a throne. And that scene chokes me up every time I see it. Because don't we long for that day when our king returns and takes his rightful seat on the throne of the world. You know, Jesus was pretty reluctant to use this title of Messiah or Christ. Only three times do we see it plainly embraced in the sayings of Jesus. And I think that was probably because all the misconceptions that came with it for his own guys, his own men, didn't understand And mark this down, this confession 
of Jesus as the Messiah, the King, the Anointed One, it marks the very middle of this Gospel, but it marks something else. It's a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. He is now headed to Jerusalem. And we know what happens there. So let's get to the third T. And this is where we're probably going to wrap up today. But that's his target. His target. Look at verse 31. And he began to teach them. Now this is interesting. Don't miss the context. He doesn't teach them what he's about. He doesn't say what he's about to say until they figured out who he is. Y'all with me? Until they came to understand I would assert in a limited way, verse 1 of chapter 1 of Mark. This is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Cats out of the bag. They all agree with Peter. You're him. Good. Now that you understand that, you need to see something a little more clearly. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be what church? Killed. And after three days, rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside, right, away from the other disciples, and it appears that there might have been other followers around them as well, and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. That phrase, he began to teach, he makes a departure here in his teaching. Now that he is recognized by his core disciples, he immediately begins his journey to the cross. It's all about Jerusalem. It's all about this final Passover. It's all about his, his substitutionary death and atonement on that cross and his resurrection three days later. Now let me ask you something. You're good Bible students, or even if you're fair Bible students, do the disciples get this yet? yet. No, they don't. Listen, here, 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 I'm going to let the cat on the bag here. Here's what I think this weird healing in stages is about. What do you see? Oh, I see people moving around. They look like trees to me. That's exactly the vision that they're having here. They see, these disciples see, oh, you're the, you're, the, you're the one we've been waiting for. Yes, but do they see clearly? No. I think, I think part of what we're seeing here, and it wasn't for a lack of Jesus' presence with them either, was it? They were slow of heart to believe. They needed the Holy Spirit, which was coming. Once the Holy Spirit came, the other shoe fell and it was on, Right? I think that's what this whole thing is about. They did not have clear vision yet. But you might mark it in your Bible, just like I did in mine, this important division here between verse 30 and 31. It's at this point, up to this point, the focus was on Jesus the servant, and from now on the focus is on Jesus the sacrifice. Looking back, there were crowds preaching and popular ministry. Looking ahead, the crowds dry up, the skies darken, and all the roads lead to Jerusalem. Here's another way to say it. Here, in this verse, in this passage, Jesus starts his death march. Why he really came. 
And did they understand that? They saw men walking as trees. They couldn't see. This is the first, you might jot this down, I think this is, this is the first of three announcements that Jesus made about his death and resurrection. Um, I find that fascinating. Was Jesus anywhere allegorical or unclear when he tells them what's going to happen next? Is, is there anything obtuse about that or prophetical in the sense of, well, you know, there's three ways you can look at that? It's, it's pretty straightforward, right? They still don't get it. He said, I'm going to go down there and the elders, which are the influential men, members of the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, which would be Sadducees and the scribes, Pharisees, um, all of them in the Sanhedrin, they're all going to reject him like a counterfeit coin. And this is going to be the final confrontation. <laughs> this blind man went from having blurred vision to seeing clearly. But it seems like Peter went from clear back to fuzzy. <laughs> Can anybody relate to that in here? <laughs> right? This was a nonsensical revelation at the time. Made no sense to Peter whatsoever. One minute he's inspired from heaven. The next minute his inspiration is from hell. First he stood on the top rung of the ladder that reached into the heavens. Then he dives off Acapulco Cliff. And he belly flops in front of all the onlookers. <laughs> One minute he was Peter the rock, and the next he was Peter the boat anchor. Peter saw only shame in the cross. Jesus saw glory. Peter saw defeat, but Jesus saw victory. See, Peter's kind of belief encouraged political revolution rather than spiritual revival. We've got to be careful of that today. The answer for our nation does not reside on Capitol Hill. The answer for our nation resides on Calvary's Hill. And an empty tomb and a seated king. Amen. And yes, we are to press the crown rights of this king into every godless corner of this culture, and not just this culture, of every culture. So Jesus has to warn them sternly. He's going to Jerusalem not to reign, but to die. But they don't get it. So he's telling his disciples this, super clear, and Peter doesn't want to be embarrassed, Jesus, but he kind of takes him by the arm and, and, and off to the side and says, hey, stop talking like that. We see it in Mark's gospel later, or Matthew's gospel, or, and even in Luke, that I'm not going to let that happen. And what does Peter say, Jesus say to Peter? Now notice, notice let's, let's read that. I want to show you something that I, I only saw recently. Verse 33, but when he, Jesus, had turned around and looked at his disciples. So, so look, here's what happened. Peter takes Jesus off to the side, and it's just Peter and Jesus over here. Peter says what he says. Jesus turns his back on Peter. He's not even looking at Peter when he says what he says. Don't miss it. Jesus turns and faces the disciples and then says with Peter behind him, get behind me. Satan. 
I like the old King James. For thou savorest not the things of God. You know what the problem here was? Satan's voice was coming out of Peter's mouth. I know that's never happened to any of you. It sure has happened to me more times than I'd like to admit. Peter's behind him. That's why get behind me, Satan. That's where he already was. That's why Jesus turned his back on him. He says, get behind me, Satan. That, that's got a sting. He looks at his disciples with his back to Peter because they agree with Peter's assessment of the situation. Peter was a spokesman. But Peter had become unwittingly the carrier of demonic doctrine. And isn't that parallel to what, what Christ faced in the wilderness when Satan tempted him to abandon the Father's will and seek an easy servanthood? Remember that? It's the same thing. Satan was in Peter's voice. And Jesus says, get behind me. Nothing is going to keep me from what I came to do. Now, Jesus wasn't calling Peter the devil, but he saw in Peter's mistaken concern the very same temptation to avoid suffering and choose the easy way. So why such strong language? Because as Jesus gets closer to the cross, he couldn't have any tolerance towards this specific temptation. Because don't we see it at the very end? There's any other way. Let this cup pass from me. There is a human temptation for Jesus to walk away from the cross. And that's why I think in this story he gradually heals the blind man that it, that it precedes this right here. He's chiding his disciples for their slowness of spiritual understanding. They were so slow to get it, slow, slow to see it, so slow to comprehend what Jesus is saying and doing. And, and don't we know that spiritual maturity is not something that happens all at once? We have to grow. We have to develop. Reminds me of John Newton's hymn, and I think I'll, I'll wrap us up here. John Newton's hymn, I'll just quote a couple of verses of it. He said this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead, instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. It's a painful process. That's what Newton was saying there. Same guy that wrote Amazing Grace knew what it was to be beat up with the truth of a, of a, of a sinful heart. And it was seeing ourselves for who we really are So blind, so deaf, so slow to come to understanding that we, we learn to despise sin and to be devoted to the Savior. We got to see it. And Peter was very close on the road to doing just that. It is a painful vision, however. For sure. John Piper said this about Mark 8 31. 
He said, but listen to Psalm 40, 49, 7 to 8. No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for them. The ransom for a life is costly. No payment is ever enough. In other words, no mere man can ransom another man's soul. Listen to what he says. And you can't ransom your own. Then listen to verse 15 of that psalm. But God will redeem me from the realm of the dead. He will surely take me to himself. Man can't, but God will. Peter, if you resist my plan to die, you resist God. You side with Satan against God. Satan doesn't want me dead because he wants you in hell. Satan wants me to bow down and worship him and jump off temples for fame and turn stones into bread for self-preservation. The last thing he wants is for a ransom to be paid for his captives. But that's what God wants. Peter, because he loves you, my coming to die as your ransom is the love of God. Wow. So what are we supposed to do with all this? That's a good question. Because here's the deal. In a minute we're going to open these elements. How do we approach this table today? Great, with gratefulness. Seeing the commitment of our Savior. Knowing what He came to do. So tempted by those who loved Him best but did not see clearly. So tempted by the enemy through them, those closest to Him. And yet, he steadfastly set his face to Jerusalem to his ultimate torturous death and his glorious resurrection in order to fulfill the Father's will from before the foundation of time. He let nothing get in that way. So here's, here's, the, here's the, the question for us today. What are you letting get in the way? How's your vision? <laughs> How much of your own life and the revelation of God's Word looks to you like trees walking around? Could it be that we're bringing our own prejudices to God's Word, our own ideas? Instead of going to God saying, Lord, not my will but yours be done, we're going to God saying, here's my will, Lord. Now stamp your approval. I know exactly how this should play out. I've got it all figured out. I just need you to, to give me my little red check because this is what we're doing. Are we seeing clearly? Or is our vision fuzzy? This table reminds us of clarity. Jesus knew why he was here. He knew what he came to do and he did it flawlessly. May we have that, may we pray for right now that same kind of vision. We're going to take a minute and pray um, in silence before the Lord as you examine your heart. Ask the Lord, how's my vision? What am I seeing? And maybe more importantly, Lord, what am I missing? What am I missing today? And He will show you. And may we repent and take this table with gladness. Let's take a moment and pray.